guys hello everyone good morning how are you guys doing how are you guys so far well i hope that you're all taking good care of yourselves and you know having this positive attitude despite the tough times and you know we'll just keep on praying that everything will be all right soon okay to give you a hint why i am here like, why am I speaking? Why am I speaking to you? <laughs> like some of that? First, let me welcome you to this podcast. Yes, another podcast. This time we are going to tackle or discuss about a certain topic that some of you might be familiar or unfamiliar with. I hope you're all ready to listen. So we are going to discuss about an anarchy of family, state, and family in the Philippines. So this is from Madison, University of Wisconsin's Center for Southeast Asian Studies on 1993. It was edited by Alfred W. McCoy. This collection of essay, I mean this collection of essays, brings together some of the best Filipino and Western scholars, each of whom contributes I mean each of whom contributes an essay on a single family or a closely interconnected set of families. The chosen families all have, all have a lineage which extends through several generations of powerful players in the Philippine political system. Each family study also helps to illustrate the validity of the central thesis of the volume that instead treating of the Philippine Philippine past solely as the interaction of state private institutions and popular movements historians might well analyze its political history through the paradigm of elite families I'm pretty sure some of you might recognize the families that I'm going to mention in this podcast and that's totally okay. So let's proceed. For the first family, we have the Lopez family, which was written by Alfred McCoy. Uh, the narrative talks about the brothers Eugenio and Fernando Lopez. McCoy meticulously plots the rise of the Lopez family from the plantation frontier to ownership of sugar mills, provincial newspapers, bus companies, and the Manila Electric Company and the parallel, parallel ascent from provincial to national-level politics. McCoy exposes them for what they were. He coded master manipulators of the state, operators without peer within the irrespective realms, through coverage, cunning, manipulation, a certain political genius, and links with the violent underworld. Eugenio accumulates um, capital and assets, while gaining access to state power concurrently. Through crisis after crisis, the Lopez brothers, they not only survive but manage to stay ahead. Above all, they bounce back to prominence in 1986 after a sustained attempt by Marcos 
to eliminate the problem, concludes McCoy, is that Marcus tried to destroy that family, not the system itself which had been manipulated to serve elite interests. Okay, move on to the next, The De Guzman Family. It was written by Brian Fegan. So, five de Guzman brothers, all men of prowess, belies this, as he puts it, quote-unquote, the magaling na lalaki or efficacious man, is no ordinary man. Brian Fegan, an American anthropologist, wrote in his book, An Anarchy of Families, the Filipino family is the most enduring political unit and the one into which, failing some wider principle of organization, all other units dissolve. He said, Filipinos look at political continuity as merely a transfer of power among family members. Thus, they also look at political competition in terms of rivalry between families. A family that has once contested an office, particularly if it has one won it, I mean if it has once won it, sets its eye on that office as its permanent right. He admits to the difficulties of slotting people into neat categories. He detects enigmatic behavior, multiple or shifting identities, or such perplexing ironies, such as Andron de Guzman, the hook commander with high ideals almost approaching the Christ-like, eventually taking employment as armed guard for his Manila patron's business enterprise. For Figan, there is no dismissing the rhetoric. Such perplexities must be understood and theorized. Up to a point, anyway, for such phenomena are also regarded as superstructural in the final reckoning. The picture that emerges in Figan's essay is one of a world of efficacious men and their politics. At times, one is led to wonder if there isn't a feminine dimension against which this macho male politics establishes itself. Is there something to the fact that the five brothers were raised almost single-handedly by a widowed mother? Or that the five brothers' dealings with the powerful Buen Camino or De Leon family were mediated by clan matriarch Doña Narcisa? So the next family that we are going to tackle about is the Pardo de Tavera family. It is written by Ruby Paredes. The essay of Paredes was mainly focused on Mita Pardo de Tavera, a medical practitioner and feminist who participated in the People Power Revolution and later served the Aquino government. So Joaquin and Trinidad, Hermenegildo or Hermenegildo, or they were called TH, Mita's father, Pardo de Tavera, who first cultivated the tradition of idealism and public service that marks out the family under study. The narrative highlights the sensational murders of Juliana and her daughter Paz by the latter's husband, Juan Luna. Paredes's critical ire is directed at nationalist, nationalist hagiography, the sort that has excluded TH from the pantheon of heroes on the basis of his anti-revolutionary leanings. He called Aguinaldo's government as homegrown tyranny and open collaboration with the Americans. This is a fair criticism because TH, after all, at the age of 30, was more humanist than French, later becoming a liberal with genuine, not rhetorical, modernizing impulses. 
For that, he surely deserves a place in the history of the Philippine nation-state. TH's portrayal of himself as serving the interests of the Filipino people, whether they recognize it or not. The, biogra the biographical highlighting of public service and country first posits a family in historical maturity, able to separate the private and the public spheres of action and thus capable of producing true citizens of a modern state. In contrast, the nationalist painter Juan Luna is a dark-skinned Indio who marries into this Spanish-Filipino family, fails to impose his will over his wife, and in the end commits violent murder. It was dismissed by a French court as a crime of passion. Luna in the text signifies the persistent rule of the census among the populace of large and in the overall context of the book, the, particular, the particularism tyranny and violence of the provincial elites. In TH's words, Luna was jealous, fiercely jealous, like a Malayan. Moreover, the morals of the inhabitants of that, parts, of that part of the island where he hails from are legendary and jealousy made them commit horrible crimes there, veritable massacres. The above depiction of Luna's behavior as typically Malayan reminds us at least that the family or state problematic extends beyond the Christianized areas of the Philippines. The next family is the Osmania family. So this one is written by Resil Mujares. The Osmanias don't conform to certain stereotypes about political kingpins or warlords, should shed an interesting light on such concepts of elite dominance as neopatrimonialism clientelism, machine politics, and corporatism in the Philippines. That's why the Osmanias have been prominent for a century now. The Osmanias negotiate the divide and render it meaningless. They skillfully combine public benefit with private gain. They are not only instrumentalists but true believers in the precepts of liberal democracy and free enterprise. They engage in the politics of thuggery and bribery, but also speak and act in ways that animate their audiences and evoke consent. Next is the Montano family. The Montanos studied by Sidel cannot be compared to the likes of Lopez's and formed a virtual dynasty. There are limits to their rise because of the lack of solid base predatory wealth to fall back on. Seidel proposes a comparison not with royalty, but with the big man. Phenomenon in pre-colonial Southeast Asia, particularly the man of prowess, explored by Oliver Walters. The big man is transposed into the figure of Justiniano Montano, Montano or Montano, a provincial warlord who exploited opportunities in the, the post-war political situation the Montanos are placed in the context of a generalized situation of small-town clans dominating, dominating Cavite since the late Spanish period. Sidel's discovery of a condition of competing clans and big men leads him to undermine the nationalist portrayal of Aguinaldo and his officials as revolutionaries. 
Instead, they appear as big men spearheading the local political machines. The quote-unquote watchful frayers are seen to function just like the U.S. police in the next century. As a check on the disorderly activities of the big men, interestingly, the continued lawlessness in the region in the early years of U.S. occupation is attributed to banditry under the ages of powerful clans, rather than continuations of resistance against American occupation. One wonders why the bandits bothered to wear smart uniforms and proclaim revolutionary Republican ideals. What Sidel shares intimately with. We also have to tackle about the Durano family. The chapters by Michael Klein on the Durano family, the warlord whose photo graces the book's cover, could very well have been Ramon Durano, who used violence to establish political control over Danao city and deliver votes to national politicians. Kulinane seeks to analyze the mechanisms that the family uses to maintain political and economic control. The story that emerges is a perfect um, example of the politics of guns, goons, and gold. Durano is depicted as holding total power over his freedom, fiefdom, only his national patron. Marcus could keep him in check. The people power was certainly ineffective against this entrenched and distant warlord. Colinane is dismissive of Durano's claims about this care for his people and constituency. The people of Danao are helpless victims of the warlord. They are the helpless victims of the warlord, at best hopelessly mired in a culture of dependency. Scorn is heaped upon Durano's later embracement of religion as his awkward identification with Christ, his philanthropy. Colinane brushes aside the rhetoric and sees Durano's retirement gestures simply as the ex-warlord making a deal with God. The final patron, to ensure passage to heaven. It is rather more difficult though to provide a familister, clientelist explanation for why Durano's son Deo turned against his father, accusing the family of abusing its power. The Montano studied this Adele by Sidel cannot be compared to the likes of the Lopezes who formed a virtual dynasty. There are limits to their rise because of the lack of a solid base in a proprietary wealth to fall back on. That was Sidel proposed. So a short um, meaning of fiefdom. Um, Webster Dictionary says it is an area over which someone exercises control as or in the manner of a feudal lord. So that because um, you guys will encounter a lot of fiefdoms in this podcast, might as well know what it is really, what it, what it really means. Sorry. So the next family that we are going to tackle about is the Muhammad family. The most sensational of them, Muhammad Ali Dimaporo is introduced by McCoy as the country's archetypal archetypal warlord and a provincial politician from Mindanao who maintained a purer form of warlordism. The author of this is author G. Carter Bentley, however, is a decidedly reluctant to use such language. At most, he makes 
he makes reference to Dimapora's warlord image. In most respects, Dimapora's activities in the Maranao region paralleled those of the Duranos and Montanos in the Christianized North. Bentley could very well have constructed his subject as a typical warlord who survived changing circumstances and whose influence extended to the national level. But he takes a different tack. Rather than being relentlessly judgmental, he lets Dimaporo speak. Not that there is a lack of details on guns, goons, and gold in the chapter, but at least we get the option of viewing Dimaporo on his own terms. Bentley has the advantage of having a broader analytical vocabulary to draw from. Guided by the writings of Indonesianists and Malaysianists who have taken culture seriously, he considers non-Western conceptions of power or datuship in the state that might explain the often contradictory and puzzling behavior of Dimaporo and the sources of his charisma. Some are sure to argue, though, that in the final analysis, it doesn't matter. Dimaporo was cunning warlord, just like the others. The Maguindanao are the other Muslim community examined in the book, Jeremy. The last family that we are going to tackle about, finally, is the Muslim Maguindanaoan. The Maguindanao are the other Muslim community examined in the book. Jeremy Beckett focuses on gubernatorial and congressional candidates from the Sinswat, Piang, Matalam, Pendaton, and Miguelian, Miguelian, Miguelian or Miguelian. The spelling is M-A-N-G-I-L-E-N. Families from 1946 to 1971. Like elsewhere, these families tended to monopolize politics at the municipal level. Beckett calls these local bailiwicks datudoms rather than fiefdoms, meaning an area over which someone exercises control as or in the manner of feudal lord. The Sonora could not sell his fiefdom without approval from the queen. So that's it. That's the meaning. Thus, avoiding associations with medieval, medieval Europe and its peculiar um, historical dynamics. Beyond the local datadoms, the family factor com competed with other frameworks for mobilization. Bequette's view of family clashes. So these are the families that we are going to, uh, that we had in our in our podcast today. So I hope that you've learned um, a lesson or two from this podcast because it's one of the contents that it's one of the lessons that we all should know especially in the Philippines. So these are the families once again. And if you have any more questions, um, just don't hesitate to PM us or DM us on our Gmail account. And thank you so much for listening up to this time. Hope that you're all doing well again and take care of yourselves, please. Thank you. Goodbye.